Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 308th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Matthew Blocky. Matthew is the CEO of Equilibrium Wealth Advisors, an independent RA based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, that oversees more than $275 million in assets under management for 330 client households. What's unique about Matthew, though, is how he and his firm have implemented pre-meeting, during-meeting, and post-meeting checklists to create more efficient processes that not only save their staff and clients some time, but also maps out all the details to be covered in each client meeting, ensuring that truly no detail of the client's life is missed. In this episode, we talk in depth about why and how Matthew and his firm decided to develop and then implement their checklists as a way to better position themselves as their clients' personal CFOs offering a more concierge experience. How Matthew leverages one-to-many recorded videos and online FAQs to increase his communication with existing clients on key issues. And why, while Matthew feels his firm is only maybe incrementally better than other good advisory firms, he attributes the 4x growth of the firm over the past four years to the fact that, like horses in a race, sometimes being just incrementally better than your competition and beating them out by an inch is all it takes to be the winner of the race. We also talk about how Matthew made the decision to break away from a large insurance company after a point of self-reflection where he realized that his career goals weren't really helping him grow as an advisor and were more set by the company's culture and its internal competition that made him feel like he always just had to keep getting more new clients instead of focusing more on the existing ones. Why, after considering corporate and tuck-in RA models, Matthew ultimately decided to go the independent RA route as he felt it was the best way for him to maintain the autonomy and implement the systems and processes that he felt would best serve his clients the way that he wanted to see them served. And how, after realizing that Matthew and his team were serving close to 700 clients at the insurance company, he decided to run an analysis of his revenues and profits and saw how 80% of his revenue and profits were coming from barely 20% of his clients and constantly decided that those would be the only ones he would even want to continue with and would leave the rest behind in the transition to independence. And be starting to listen to the end, where Matthew shares how he formulated the 125 to 150 client capacity targets for his advisory teams that he set to determine when to hire the next new advisor to ensure his existing advisors have enough time to really focus on their client experience and don't reach a stage of burnout. Why Matthew implements a top five values exercise with his clients so they can focus on what's best for them and their family and their peace of mind rather than just what's the best financial decision. And why Matthew believes that for him, the key to being a successful advisory firm owner has been the recognition that the adversity he's faced and the tension he's felt at various points along the way is what helps him recognize when he's actually growing and learning and is about to get to the next level. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Matthew Blocky. Welcome, Matthew Blocky, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks for having me, Michael. Feels good to be back. It's good to have you back. I, you know, this is one of a few episodes now that we have started to do with, you know, guests that we had back out in like the first hundred episodes, which now is all of about four or five years ago. 
which is kind of enough time for us to move further along on our journeys of of what we're doing in our advisory businesses, and then kind of look look back and and see how we're doing and and what's happened and what's changed. And so, you know, you had a a great episode in joining us originally. It was uh, episode eighty. So if anyone wants to go back and listen later, kitsis.com slash eighty slash eight zero. And you know, at the time you were thirty, you had had this fast growth cycle over your first eight years in the business had built up to about 70 million under management almost eight hundred thousand dollars of of revenue and you were building in in a big insurance company you had done kind of this shift of the early start of the business particularly in the insurance world where it's kind of very high volume of clients as you're doing transactions and had been getting into a more focused practice that said no I don't need like a bajillion volume transactional clients like I, I think your number at the time was I want like 15 great fit clients to take on every year and you were focusing more and more into working with physicians and retirees and moving that direction and so you know fast forward 4 years later the the business is almost 4x the size which is just an incredible growth trajectory particularly given how crazy the past 4 years have been you made a transition. And so I guess I'm, I'm just really excited to kind of get caught up over the past four years of like, where on earth did all this growth come from? And what happened that led to a transition? Yeah, well, great question, Michael. So I remember you asked me the same question on our first podcast, you know, when, when are you gonna, are you thinking about starting an REA or, you know, cause we we're very focused on the advice aspect of planning versus the product aspect of planning. And, you know, ultimately through that conversation and then through coaching and just really thinking through, you know, are my goals really, are my goals or my plans or my vision really for me? Are they appeasing somebody else's plans on my behalf? And, and real to ultimately on a lot of self-reflection and a lot of thinking of what are we trying to build? How are we going to best serve our, our clients? We came to the decision that it was best to do that in an independent RAA and, really focus on wearing one hat and that hat being for our clients. So like I'm just curious to understand the I guess the mindset further or what shifted. Like you you just you said like are my are my plans really for me or someone else on my behalf? Like what is what does that mean? Yeah. Well so you know my prior broker dealer I was a Fortune one hundred company they have tremendous, obviously, philosophies in place on how they get their sales force to to produce amazing results. So, their the culture was very product driven. The compensation, you know, ultimately was dependent on you know a mix of products and then the investment revenue coming in. And there was, you know, you were in study groups, you were in you know a monthly study group, a national study group, and ultimately, when you look around the culture, you kind of become the average of the people you surround yourself with. And just looking back, really, like the first five or six years of my goals, some of those were really created for me due to that culture. And and now, really, we want to be an advice centric financial planning firm that that does the best work for our clients and doing that completely separate, some completely agnostic of what products are sold, if products are there that are best interest of clients, great, we'll place them, but that can't be the leading forefront of what we do. So it sounds like part of the challenge was, you know, you you live in a large company environment where, as is common for a lot of them, like they, you know, they organize study groups of, you know, of top advisors, of top producers, of those that are are doing well and growing well and 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 driving the business profitably. So you end out in study groups with them and the, you know, the natural effect is, you know, you want to run with that herd, you want to you know, you want to be, I think you said you want to be at least the average of the people that that you're surrounded with. But that means if you're in a company that 
at the end of the day, manufactures product. The people in those groups tend to be people that move a lot of the product because that's the business of the company. And that ends out putting you in an environment where the focus ends out being more on the products and what's getting sold because that's that's the environment that gets created. Like just, I guess that because that's the environment that gets created and set up for you. Yeah, there's no question. And I think the I always use the the adage it's been coached me, you know, your greatest strengths can become your greatest weaknesses if you don't balance or monitor them that well. And I think most people at that prior firm, I can speak for myself, are very competitive no matter what I do. If I'm on the golf course, <laughs> on the 18th hole, and uh-huh. I'm down, I'm pressing, I, you know, let's get a chance to win. But that competition, if it's just for the sake of competition, you know, you have to ask yourself, what's the point? But realizing that that is a strength, it has to be, that can't be the end goal, right? So what's the the purpose? What's the mission? What's the vision of the company? If the competition is there as a healthy support system to reach your purpose, to reach your meaningful purpose, then awesome. But if it's just there for the sake of being there, it can end up being unhealthy and it can end up, you know, re- you're basically pursuing goals that aren't yours. It's an interesting way to frame it that, look, if you're competitive by nature, and I get it, like you are, I certainly am. I think a lot of folks in the industry are, particularly those who end up in sort of like get get your client's business development, grow the business, eat what you kill sort of environment, because just like competitive personalities tend to do relatively well in that environment because of the 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 structure of it that, you know, if you're a competitive type and you're in that environment, you're going to push yourself to do well because that's what you do when you're wired to be competitive. But if you're not clear on what you're actually trying to build, you just end up being competitive towards whatever the company puts in front of you is the thing to be competitive towards, which at the end of the day, like I guess it may be profitable when you can make money, but it's not necessarily what's you know, serving the higher purpose or scratching the itch of like, why exactly did you make this business or come in to be an advisor in the first place? And it's interesting how we kind of adapt as human beings too, because I think that I give so much credit to the training. We talked about this a lot on the podcast, but the activity, you know, just really being persistent, professionally persistent, getting your, you know, your language, getting the knowledge down. And I credit a lot of that to that culture where, you know, you're creating it from scratch, you're competing against every other advisor, you know, you're, you know, first couple of years I was on stage and I, I just had the the realization I was really burning at both ends and just for this this big goal and then I realized the goal when I reached it it lasted 15 seconds and I re- realized to get that feeling again was I that like a, it all over again top, uh, like a a top producer recognition that like you got and got on stage for yeah you d- you know every the first four years as an advisor you're competing against every other first year second year third year fourth year and so I think that served a, a tremendous purpose and not only just being, let's get after it, let's get clients, like, like, like let's just survive, right? Because less than 3% of advisors in this culture actually make it past those first few, year, few years. It was so hard to do this from scratch and to pound payment, make calls, get referrals, essentially cold calls. So I think that served a, a purpose of just making sure I made it. But then after that, after getting the client base and then starting to develop the niche and the business, it ended up hurting much more than did helping. So I think it helped. It was a huge catalyst for a couple of years. And then from there, you kind of needed to drop that whole concept and then focus on the net, kind of what got you here is not going to get you to the next big growth. Well, so what what changed? Like what 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 changed that, you know, be, being competitive to keep up with other advisors in the firm went from like this is helpful and driving me forward to this is no longer helpful and driving me forward. Yeah, it's very risk management based. So, 
you know, you're you're obtaining clients, and they, most people have a you know very underserved and a risk management perspective. So you can you can place the the right insurance products along with investments and get a whole financial plan going. But then you know, once you have a couple hundred clients, the the philosophy that there was to get a thousand clients. It was like you know, there's a whole book that you read. I never actually opened or read the book, but get a thousand clients and maybe twenty percent of your take your calls. Well. I experienced when you had like a couple hundred clients and you're actually doing financial planning, not only are they going to take your calls, they're going to be calling you with questions nonstop. So a thousand clients for me, it was just a ridiculous proposition. I was like, this is a this is a, a methodology that only works if you're selling insurance. It's not a methodology that works if you're doing true financial planning. So then I just had a quick realization you're on my third or fourth year, if I really want to grow a wealth management and financial planning practice, I have to I have to completely adapt, basically create a system outside of this culture. And obviously, there's many successful firms I just didn't have access to that were already doing this, but inside of that system, it it started to build you know some some friction because you want to do what you're kind of like your peers are doing, but at the same time, it, it's impossible to to serve. I think properly serve 150 or more clients as one advisor. So, you know, the fact the thought of serving a thousand is, is laughable to me if, as, as one advisor. Interesting. So it was, so for you, it sounds like it was that the depth of client relationship that you, that you get to have, if you're, if you're really doing this depth of ongoing financial advice for clients, just like the amount of questions they have, the amount of analysis you have to do, the amount of just conversations you have to have with them to advise them and get them through what they're working on means you can just only do this with so many clients at a time, you know, as, as you framed it, like maybe you get to 150 Frankly, I know some firms that don't even get that high, but you know the insurance environment. Like, I, I mean, I remember I when I started, I was a lot of the 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 opportunities I got early on were doing calls to the existing book of an advisor who'd been there for I think thirty six years at the time, and like he had. 1500 to 2000 clients like there was a room in the agency that was just for his client files like no one could have a desk in the office because it was just his client files cuz 20 plus years ago it wasn't digitized yet and and like it was just an unmatchably large number of clients i mean like we were calling clients that he hadn't seen in five to 10 years because there were so many of them he literally couldn't have seen them in the past 5 plus years but he was wonderfully successful in the insurance environment. Like he did an immense number of sales and had cultivated a huge number of relationships. But it was it was transactional business. Like there were so many of them, it was literally impossible to have a relationship with with more than a handful of them. So for you, like that that drive of I really like the financial planning side, but that necessitates deeper relationships, which means I can't pursue like the thousand plus clients that the firm is holding up as success. I need an environment or I'd like I gotta reset the goalposts to say how do I be awesome for my hundred and fifty and figure out how to do that well, not how do I rack up a thousand clients because that's what everybody else on the on the podium on the stage has done. Yeah. I think ultimately like so much respect for my prior company and like some of my peers there are just like some of the most amazing financial advisors that exist. But I think ultimately, you know, I was a bad fit for them. I was when clients came to me for advice for um, physicians, you know, looking at contracts and their RVUs to you know switching 
starting a business or selling a business, we really wanted to be the center of our clients' lives and wanted to be involved, not go out of our lane, like do tax returns, but, you know, have an intimate knowledge of taxes, have an intimate knowledge of estate planning and put it all together. And that was very hard to do because when you're running a Fortune 100 company, I think, you know, the compliance is to the lowest common denominator. So it's, it would be expensive for them to have me as an advisor there and pay for like the, the it's their own person just to oversee and make sure everything that we did what was good. And now we can do that as a private firm and we have someone that works for us, not against us is kind of how it feels. That friction is completely gone. It feels amazing. But I think it really boiled down to, we wanted to give our clients, you know, advice to solve problems that they needed help with, not just here's an insurance and investment mix. Here you go. You're good for next year. It's no constant communication through the year when there's a big decision. We want to be right by their side, helping them make the decision. Because I think most of what we do as financial advisors is really table stakes, but there's two or three big decisions or big conversations that each client has. We need to be there within like that 48-hour turnaround time and be be there for not only reducing decision fatigue, making really complex stuff understandable, but then just making sure that the clients are able to make their decision in an informed way. And that that was hard to do. It's but it's been a much easier thing to do in an independent REA. And I think the but one of the biggest things honestly is that the process of scaling. So because of the competitive culture, it was very tough to have a you know, lead advisor on my team that wasn't getting the recognition or the respect of kind of the national conferences or the having your name out there. So we tried to do that. We failed to do that. But now that we're an independent RIA, honestly, our most successful lead advisors, we have three other than myself right now, they are all phenomenal. They, the clients love them. You know, probably over a hundred of existing clients that, that had worked with me for 10 years. Our primary relationship is now with them because they have the time to, to serve them. And that was very hard to do, but it's been very easy to do here. And I think it's just really because of the culture we built. Our lead advisors are not expected to sell anything. They're expected to hug and be there for our clients and make sure that the, the plan is, is always updated. It's always live. It's always updated. And being able to create that culture versus a how many products did we sell this month or next month and comparing ourselves, it's just... I got over it, but it's really hard for you, for me to get over it. But then also convince my whole team to get over it on a daily basis. And I, you know, the culture. I can't. I didn't believe it was important, but it is so important to have a one ship mentality for your team and to protect them and their, you know, make sure everyone has a positive thought process and is bought into the mission of the company. And interesting. So I, so I just want to make sure I follow that. So like the challenge for where you were is if I want to, if I want to, you know, like put a lead advisor in place to scale my team where I'm going to take existing client relationships and hand it off to that lead advisor, which, you know, for a scaling business, a scaling advisory firm, like hugely important position, hugely valuable position can get paid pretty darn well in that position, even with very little business development obligation, just to, to be a good steward for those clients. And and the revenue that's that's associated with them but when but for the environment that you are in those advisors would not feel recognized and appreciated themselves because they wouldn't be putting up significant production numbers they wouldn't be putting up significant new business numbers because that's literally not point of the role but then that creates a tension for them because you want to hire people who can serve as clients to help you scale but the firm is basically telling them well you really got to be out getting your own clients if you want to be successful you can't be successful servicing the clients that Matthew has and that would create a tension yeah it it, it would create a tension and a lot of the 
advisor on our team, you know, they tried out the internship, but they tried out being an advisor there and they weren't the best salespeople, but I can tell you they're the best financial planners out there. I mean, they're knowledgeable. Clients feel very comfortable with the most intimate knowledge and, and intimate sharing of all their information, but the, they weren't the top salespeople. And I, I think that whether we were there or whether we were here, what we were trying to build had nothing to do with, with sales. It's growing a financial planning advice-centric wealth management practice and those two things were in big conflict. And yeah, was it was it possible? It was just it was it felt like we were constantly, you know, fighting a psychological behalf between the company and between the the team members. And it was tough. So you ultimately made a decision to to transition. So tell me about the the transition. Like, why? Well, I guess first I'm wondering, just where were you looking to go? I mean, there's a, just in general, if you're a successful advisor leaving a platform, like there's a lot of places you can go and a lot of people who are very happy to take your call. So you know, there's there's other insurance companies, there's independent broker dealers, there's the RIA channel, like. How did you decide where to go, or what did you look at to decide where to go? Yeah, we re- that's a great question. We look through, you know, what is most, what's going to be most beneficial for our clients and what their needs are. Like, what are what are the problems that they have that we are solving for them, but that we can solve in a better, easier, scalable way. And you know, we looked at other we looked at other companies that promised us they would be more lenient or more. Our creative ideas. If we wanted to start doing video content, they'd say, that's fine. We have this process. But ultimately, we wanted to have the, we wanted to be able to do stuff quick. We wanted to be able to scale as effective as we can. And the, really the, the adversity and the problem solving is something I really, I don't shy away from. I thrive from. I think that, you know, I, I always use analogies kind of like a workout to keep your body in good shape. You have to, you have to go to the gym and put it under stress. And, I view the business in the same way. You, you have to feel tension to know you're growing. If you're trying to balance, it's not you're not going to feel good. It's like balancing on foot is tough. That's how I view the business and doing an independent REA that that excited me because I knew it was going to come with its own set of not only being an advisor but the all the business decisions that that came along with it. It was very hard, but it was very very meaningful to me and and the and all team members. So that's the direction we ultimately decided to go. And ultimately, it came down to you know how can we best serve our our clients problems? How can we best serve our clients? Where can we have the greatest amount of autonomy to, to grow into the vision that we want to create for the company? So did you look at like TAMP platforms and some of the RAA, like affiliate with us, corporate RAA offerings as well? We did. We looked at every basically every option that was available. And so so what did you look at in the RAA channel to make the decision or, or do the comparisons? Yeah, we looked at we looked at tuck-ins, and it wasn't at all about the money. In fact, we've probably been much more profitable. With some of the tuck-ins were going to take like five to ten percent of revenue, and then do all of the back office stuff for us. Ultimately, we decided against that was again because of the autonomy and the excitement of of making decisions, not having decisions already made for us. That's part of what we were trying to get away from, anyways. And I I really saw I'd listened to lots of podcasts you've done, lots of other podcasts, and I basically saw this huge movement of people moving into REAs, but then the REAs, 
you know, they say they wanted to start becoming REA to do to be fiduciaries, to do best best interest of the clients. And then we started to see this movement where private equity firms got in, got involved, and all these aggregators got involved. It's like, wait a second. So you said you were going to go, you know, be a fiduciary. <laughs> now it looks like you're just trying to make as much money as humanly possible. And so we didn't want to get involved in really that because we didn't move to sell our business. We didn't move to make as much money as possible. We we moved to to serve a greater purpose and to to make the field and and provide employment and and provide best possible advice to our clients. So we just knew the control of that as the industry was rapidly changing. There was a risk to doing that as as uh, the size of a firm that we were at, but also that was going to be the most meaningful and most challenging direction to go. I find it just striking just how you're how you're framing this. I think the I think the industry likes to tell a story that one of the big drivers from insurance and brokerage firms to RIAs is is essentially the economics of it. Like cut out that broker dealer that charges you whatever, eight to twelve percent off your grid. And then they've also got that program fee of another ten or fifteen bips, which means really like they're taking twenty-five to thirty percent of your gross revenue. And if you put that through your gross revenue and you multiply that by the percentage, you get, you know, how much money the platform is taking. And you start doing the math of the staff and you're like, I can hire people for less than this. And like there's I've seen a lot of industry discussion that's essentially, you know, the the math of it can be better on the RA side because you just don't have to pay for the things that you don't need your platform and you just hire the staff and resources that you want. And in practice, I've seen some firms where that's worked out pretty well and some where it has not worked out as well because they underestimated their own costs. I'm struck as you're as you're framing this that like this basically had nothing to do with the economics of it. This was this was almost entirely a essentially an autonomy and control decision for you of we just want to make sure that we can serve clients exactly the way that we want to serve them. I mean w- within the legal requirements, but like we. We want to serve them exactly the way that we want to serve them without being beholden to anyone else's compliance or management saying, here's what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. And so that's what pushed you in the direction of, we're just going to have to literally hang our own shingle because anything else we affiliate to means people are going to be able to tell us what to do and we don't want that. That You nailed it. That's it. I mean, I would have taken a, a pay cut, uh, which I, we temporarily did. And the economics, they you know ultimately worked out long term, but that was it. And I'm a young guy; I, I don't ever see myself retiring. I see myself wanting to do this and uh, do it well for a very long period of time. So, controlling the environment and, and building it the way we wanted to build it, I think, was the going to be the ultimate driver. Where we're able to control not being burned out and always having the excitement and the challenges to keep us to keep us sharp. You know, iron sharpens iron. So what did you do when it came time to actually set up? Like you've got to pick custodial platform, a bunch of tech, you got to figure out compliance stuff, like who like what what platforms and providers did you pick to actually figure that out and 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 get going? I have a smile on my face. I can't see it cuz this is a recording, but it, yeah, it was a a lot of decisions very very quickly. We I, I had done a, a trip out to, to TD Ameritrade RIA conference. We were pretty sure, you know, at that time, if we moved, that we were going to go with TD Ameritrade. And then they announced the, the 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 merger with Schwab. And after doing a lot of research, you know, we we're going to be at TD would have been very, you know, big in in their ecosystem, comparatively speaking, because they worked with a lot of. But then in Schwab, we were going to be like a small fish. So we're like, I don't want to be mixed in. Well, this is happening. You know, who knows. Well, we're trying to make a transition. Where we're going to fall in line? Are we going to get the right service? Are they going to be focused on this merger? So that that really just 
ultimately made an easy decision not to do that. And not saying we won't partner with them because they're both great companies in the future, but then just researching, looking at where do our clients have their money already? A lot of 401k plans at hospitals are with Fidelity. And so we contacted Fidelity, really headed off with them. All the technology we had researched, you know, some of it like Fidelity owns eMoney, Redtail, all these CRM, everything just started to match. And Fidelity became a very easy choice for us and a custodian platform for us to to choose. And this all happened in you know, June of 2020 is when we made the official transition. So we were able to do, I want to say like 99% of the transition electronically, which made it. It was right during COVID. No one was really, you know, people that would have never met us on Zoom or done a DocuSign. They weren't forced by us. They were forced in other areas of their life to, to adopt that. So literally everyone just accepted that whether they wanted to or not. So it made the, the timing of it made it the easiest possible transition, I think, in history. Fidelity said we were one of the quickest transitions that had ever, they'd ever seen. Interesting. So the the fact that the transition happened in in not even just COVID, but early stage COVID, where everything was getting shut down and limited, made it a lot easier to tell clients like, "Hey, we're doing this transition," and like, "I'm so sorry. I know you're not really into the digital thing, but we have to do all this with digital paperwork, and I'll meet with you by Zoom if you have questions." And you could do that because like they they couldn't come in and meet with you in person and do physical paperwork if they wanted to because it was the early stage of the pandemic and everything was getting shut down. That was it. Yeah, I mean, essentially, we had we had thought through of you know thinking about scaling the practice. What is every objection? What is every question that clients are going to have? And we we came up with a frequently asked question sheet, and we recorded some videos. Every possible question that we anticipated, we got out there, and we prevented a lot of those calls. So then we got the transition done, and they were able to get right back into financial planning mode, where we're doing the systematic, you know, reviews and and getting everyone on board and used to the new systems. So share with me a little more just how you communicated this. So so I think I heard so there was a uh, there was like an FAQs sheet. So you tried to come up with any question or concern that they'd have and just wrote it all out in advance. So was that like was that a letter? Was that like a page you put up on a website? Like how did you how did you create and distribute this this like FAQs thing? Yeah, that was there was a MailChimp, I believe, and we had to I remember we had to replicate by memory like all of our clients, look them up in white pages, get their contact information rebuilt. I mean it was it was crazy. And then get this get this email sent sent out. Right, because the whole dynamic when you're leaving, like cannot cannot take clients cannot take client information. So you gotta remember who they are and then look them up to figure out how to contact them again out outside. Yeah, which is so which is scary because like literally you pay for like the top subscription on I, th- I think it was like white pages and it's information's right there. My information is right there. Your information is right. I mean, it's it's pretty easily accessible. It was kind of surprising. We had a consultant helping us with the transition as well that, that helped us through these, you know, these key decisions, not to to mess anything up from a legal perspective. So, but it was very helpful, and it, it turned out perfect. And out of curiosity, can I ask, like, who who did you work with for counsel on the transition to make make sure you didn't do anything you're not supposed to do and get in trouble? Yeah, we still work with with her now. She switched. She, she's now switched firms. Her name's Amy Jackham, and she's with Miller Johnson. But she was incredibly helpful, just with advice. Here's what to do. Here's what what not to do. And then there was a our team worked very very diligently around the clock with you know making the decisions of of how we're going to streamline this on the back end. So from the transition end of it, so you said as well, like you were doing videos to explain it. 
So like, what, what was that? So in general, if like, let's say the, like the war, the Russia, Ukraine war is happening and the market drops 15%, 90% of the questions we're going to have, we're going to get are going to be similar questions. What's happening with the market? Do we need to make moves? You know, what are, what are we doing proactively or rebalancing? Got to stay in the market. Our answers are going to be relatively the same, different depending on the client's financial situation, if they're retired, if they're young, et cetera. But the same goes for this transition. We knew clients were going to have questions of, you know, are there downsides for me? Why are you making this transition? What does an RAA mean? Are the fees going to be different? There was going to be a list of maybe 10 or 20 questions that we knew we were going to get. And so instead of scheduling, you know, a hour-long meeting to hit every client, you know, let's say, I don't remember how many clients we, we took with us. It was 200 households or 100, maybe 150 households, 200 households. That's a lot of it. That's a lot of time and a lot of meetings, a lot of energy. So we figured if we did the videos, batch everything, it would save everyone, it would save time and clients could rewatch and rewatch if they didn't. Because in a meeting, sometimes you don't, right. you don't retain the information right from the first time. And and so the video was this also a like you recorded it and then when you sent the email with the FAQ it had a video as well or like did you distribute video separate from the FAQ just how did you yeah, get the word out it, it was all one page it was one page making the the announcement and then it was a link to a PDF that like sat on uh, an online PDF with the FAQs and then there was I want to say like five videos that were linked through like Vimeo or some online platform. So one email, but then with lots of separate links to go to the different resources. And so like, how did you decide which, which clients were, were coming with or that you wanted to have follow you when you, when you left? Like, were you trying to bring all clients? Were you trying to bring some clients? Like, how did you think about that part of the transition? Yeah, that's, that's a, an excellent question as well. You know, we, we had evolved into you know, a very highly detailed, sophisticated wealth management practice where we're doing a lot of things for a lot of people and that wasn't scalable. You know, we're at the time, due to, you know, internal protocols as well, we were required to meet with everyone if they had an advisory account, whether someone had 50000 or or $5 million. And so, you know, just thinking about, you know, business 101, if you and I were to go buy a car, the same car, and they were to offer you the car for 50000 me the car for 20000 that would be kind of ridiculous, right? That would probably be illegal from a, a car perspective. Well, I think if you look at any financial advisory practice, the same practice, the business practice is happening where you're providing the same amount of time, attention, and energy, and overhead and expenses behind the scenes to clients that are paying drastically different amounts of revenue to your firm. So we wanted, we realized that issue and we didn't want anyone, you know, we want our biggest clients paying the way for young, like our smallest clients to have similar amount of advice. And we also realized, you know, that we weren't necessarily fit to serve smaller clients anymore because we, we didn't have the time or the attention or the resources or the structure to really serve those clients the best way. So we did an 80-20 analysis and figured out, you know, what are the 20% of our client base that's making up 80% of, of the current revenues, of the current growth, and let's just focus on building our our systems and practice around those and let's take those with and then let's make sure that the other ones, you know, the other ones did reach out. And we, you know, we recommended that, you know, what advisor to stay, stay with at the old firm and that they would be in, in great hands there. So, so you didn't necessarily look at this as a, you were, 
we're going to do a partial book sale or a transaction of the clients that aren't a fit that we're not trying to bring along. Your focus was just, we're going to find the subset that are a really good fit by you know, looking at the eighty twenty rule and figuring out what's the what's the twenty percent of clients that are driving the bulk of the the revenue and the profits and the growth, anyways, and we're just only going to hope that we get those. If anybody else follow, wants to follow us, we won't even take them. We'll just say, hey, stay where you are. Here's another advisor at the firm. Uh, you don't need to make a transition. Yeah, and it's it's tough because I know a lot of advisors go through that psychologically. They make promises. I think the reality is you you know. You can't you can't lie to yourself, and you feel bad about the promise you made. Oh, well, let's I'm going to continue to serve that person forever. But in the reality, that person would be so much better served with someone that's excited, and that that person is the biggest client of a younger advisor, and that younger advisor is capable of holding them. It's it's just going to be such a better fit. So I think to really withhold your promise, sometimes it's letting go and making sure that client is is the best served, which is not always you. That was it was a tough decision, but it was the right decision looking back. So how many clients did you have at the old firm and how many ultimately ended up sticking with you at the new firm? Too many, for sure, because you know we were in that culture of getting to that thousands. I want—I want to say we had like six or seven hundred clients in quotation marks. But I would, you know, the transition over the new firm. I want to say it was somewhere between 125 to 200 households that we that we took with us. I know that's a large range. I just—I really don't want to misspeak, but I know it's somewhere in that range. But it's 600, 700. You, that really from the from the original that you really are in the like 20 to 30 percent of clients that 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 followed or that you allowed to follow. Exactly. Yeah. And it was really for us like a 1090 analysis from a revenue perspective, but then the other 10%, it was like, oh, these are young doctors making seven figures a year that are adding hundreds of thousands of dollars every year. So they're going to build quickly into, into the, you know, the right kind of client that we want to, to help develop long-term. And so presumably then that context, like 60, 70 plus percent of clients stayed behind. But the whole point of this is like, but the overwhelming majority of your revenue came along because in practice, the the advisory revenue is very concentrated in a small subset of the, the high volume clients. Exactly. Exactly. And economically, because we're able to, you know, I think our grid rate when we left was like, I don't know, like 79 to 85%. But after the program fees and all, you know, all the other stuff that, that went out there, I think we ended up taking like 65%. So you go to an REA, you obviously have lots of overhead of technology decisions and you have to hire more team. So it ends up being the same, but revenue, like total revenue wise, I think we were pretty much within three to six months, similar amount to where we were before, even on a third of our client base because of the 80 20 analysis and because of being independent. Wow. That is that that's striking. Like when you know, when you when you remove the the grid cuts and the program fees and the rest, having only a segment of clients, I mean, just at the end of the day, like your revenue was almost back to where it was after three to six months, and that's with twenty to twenty-five percent of the households. So like just literally less less work to do or less distractions to have because you don't have the other eighty percent of clients that were contributing net zero. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So did you have challenges from the firm still trying to compete for and retain clients as you were talking to them about potentially leaving and going with you? Yeah, the they assigned our clients to different advisors there that tried to, you know, convince them to stay. I I looking back, I think the best possible thing we did was just really develop a rock solid relationship with those clients. Always keep their best interests in mind. And, you know, clients can feel that. And it's tough to 
whether it's a, any kind of financial professional, once you find someone that's good, if we find a client we like or a client finds us that they like, I mean, it's it's a rock solid relationship. It's hard to break. So I mean, there were people knocking down the door and hammering them. And it really, I want to say it was like 99% of our clients that we wanted to come with did come with us. And it was relatively quick. And the calls they got really helped us. They didn't hurt us because it was a kind of reminder to the, you know, Dr. Smith, I'm just making that name up, who, yeah. you know, was too busy in the OR. So every, everything happened pretty quickly, pretty painlessly. There was a couple clients that we thought, you know what, these are young young doctors at the, one of the tactics that worked against us was like, oh, Matt, he's so busy. He's too, you know, he only works with big accounts now. Has he called you in the last six months? And they're like, oh, no, he hasn't. So that was like one or two people and mm. them staying behind. And that, that's where that competitive spirit just crushed me. But no, we got over it. And now we're, <laughs> now we are where we are. But it's kind of funny the, how little things can affect you when you're so competitive. But that's again, the, just the self-awareness that your greatest strength can become your greatest weakness quickly unless you keep it in check. So what's it like? What was it like in the in the aftermath? Like you get three to six months in, client pretty much all the clients you wanted to come came along. Revenue has kind of gotten back to where it was. It's like okay, now like now what have we done to ourselves and what comes next? Yeah, so we fought. We followed the U.S. model, you know, the written in the traction book, and I think on the first podcast we had just you know adopted that. And so we've continued to to use that. And so, you know, we just followed the, got a 10-year, three-year, one-year vision. And then from there, we break it down into quarterly rocks and then, you know, weekly scorecard. And so every week we're talking about this, that that is our culture is, you know, maintaining that one-ship mentality. Everyone's paddling in the same direction. And so from there, it was just establishing the rocks of how do we reach uh, how do we reach the long term vision and and really I think the big mindset shift now is how do we mostly the effort the journey is the reward the goal is not the the reward anymore it's the the daily basis the adversity the struggle the effort the you know the companionship of, of being in a business together that's the that's the journey that's most fulfilling. So, so talk to us how growth has e- evolved and flowed. So, when you were when you were with us a little over four years ago, you were at about seventy million dollars under under management on the advisory side, and then you still had a flow of insurance business as well. So, I, I guess I'm wondering, like, where where was it when you actually made the transition? Like, just once once you got through the transition the dust settled what was the what was the the client AUM base and then how has it changed over the past 2 years yeah i want to say right when we left it was like 150 160 there and then we took 120 with us with you know that 20 or that 20% represented about 120 million and now we're sitting at the market's very choppy between 275 to 300 million and so you know, essentially, you know, you said at the beginning 4X, that's basically from 2017, 2019, 2019, 2021, we've doubled every two years, almost exactly from an AUM perspective, but then also a, um, a revenue perspective as well. So, so I'm, I'm struck from that perspective. Like, it sounds like growth isn't necessarily all that different for where you are versus, versus where you were, like just, you know, you doubled in two years before you left, and you doubled in two years after you left. Granted, as the firm gets bigger, like the doublings get harder because the, the denominator sure. gets bigger. But but it sounds like not not necessarily a significantly different trajectory in terms of growth from where you were versus being in the RA now. Yeah, I think the 
I, f- I found it has been much more difficult to, the bigger you are, the more difficult it is because you have your existing clients you're always keeping, you know, first. And you want to make sure that as you grow, you're remembering the clients that got you there and you're, you're making sure that you have the right amount of advisors, the right infrastructure, the right technology to always serve them in the best possible capacity. So, you know, from here moving forward, it's just scaling properly and making the right decisions to make sure that that growth is still sustainable. But as, as far as how we've grown now, it's it's much more thoughtful than just a get every single client that will walk in the door and sign them up. It's, you know, we're, we're signing one out of every three people that walk in the door. The other two people we have a relationship with other advisors that we're able to say, hey, this person will much better fit your needs if, you know, you're dealing with student loans or you have, if you're just starting out, essentially. So share with us more, like what's what's different now about the thoughtful growth? Like what is what is growth look like for you? What are you trying to get to grow in a thoughtful manner? Yeah. So we want we really want to we really want to do the best possible job quarterbacking, you know, big client decisions in our in our niches. So, you know, right now we're working with primarily physicians, retirees, corporate leaders, and business owners. So we really want to stay within those those segments because then the decisions, the offerings, those can all scale. The majority of what we've done thus far is through word of mouth. So it's existing clients referring us to friends, family members, or acquaintances. And that I could ask, you know, what's what's made up the majority of your growth so far? That's it. 80% of our growth has been from probably 20% of our clients that that do a great job referring us to friends and families and close acquaintances. And And is that similar to what it was in the past as well? Like just word of mouth from a small subset of higher referring clients. It it was. We also had a lot of joint work partners when we were, you know, before we did a lot of seminars to young physicians. We we would ask for referrals in an artful way, and now you know we're not doing really. I I did one because I was asked to do it, but we're not doing any seminars. We're really not asking for referrals. We're just trying to do the best possible job, grow our brand through you know social media, video content, um, communicate actively, proactively to all of our clients and staying top of mind. And then also just really focus on training our existing lead advisors to make sure that they're able to, to take on the right amount of clients and that we're able to continue to take on the growth that we've experienced thus far. So, you know, as, as I'm sure you know, I've seen as well, like most advisors want to grow well through referrals and existing clients they're serving. Most advisors I know are not growing at, well, basically like 40% growth rates is what about what it takes to double every every two years. So like what's different about what you guys are doing that's generating so much referral-based growth that other advisory firms aren't doing because they don't most don't see that kind of referral growth. Yeah, I think the the easiest way to describe this, I, I we kind of think of things like before it was like meet meet because there's going to be a sales opportunity or meet because you know activity drives results or meet because you have the option to gain referrals. And now as busy as I am, when I work with other professionals, you know, it really drives me crazy when I feel like time is being wasted or almost disrespected. Like if you're sitting in a waiting room for 20 minutes. So most of our clients are in very similar positions in life. They have families, they have careers, they have all these demands pulling themselves in the different direction. That's why I really we formed the name Equilibrium Wealth Advisors, finding balance, getting that tension right to, to be able to balance things and 
So the way we view things is actually not, we're not ever going to meet to meet. We want to save your time, not waste your time, which I think in the advisory field, a lot of people are just meeting to meet. And so a lot of our processes now are more like a, a CFO perspective where we're reporting to clients when they want to be reported to. But we're trying to take as much as we possibly can off of their plate to save their time, not waste their time. They're ultimately the CEO. They're they're in control of their lives. They're in control of the direction. But that's really the relationship we take on. I think clients can can really feel that. And that's a different experience from other advisors that they've worked with where it's like, why do you want to meet with me? Well, oh, you're just trying to sell me something new. It just really creating that concierge and that trusted advisor experience is where I think the most of the growth has come from. And then the, you know, instead of doing a portfolio review with everybody and talking about, we do videos every quarter where we address every question that a client may have. And some clients love watching those and give us great feedback. And some clients have never even clicked on it. And so it's, we don't leave it up to our choice of what time is spent on. We leave it to our clients' choices. And those that want to do it have access to it when they want it, when they have time. And then during our client reviews, we're really able to focus on their life specifics. We're not just checking a bunch of boxes, which I felt like I was doing in, in reviews at our prior, our prior place. So when you say like you're trying to do more in the form of you know, reporting so we don't have to meet and can, and can save you time, I guess I'm wondering more like what what else are you actually doing there? So I hear one piece is 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 video video reviews. So is that is that video like for each client? You record a a little video for them to talk through talk them through their review, or is this uh, similar to when you were doing the the breakaway transition, like of a one to many video that you put out for all clients to see each quarter? So it's, it's, uh, it's both. We do, as topics come up that are timely, like the war, if the market's dropping, we'll do a video one time for that. If it's every single quarter, we'll send out you know our investment portfolio reports. We use Orion, so that goes right in the e-money vault, but we do a commentary that goes along with that. And so clients have access to that anytime when they, you know, when they have time. But then during, what are we actually doing for clients? I mean, we're going... I view things as retirement planning, education planning, you know, general tax budget, cash flow, and those are all kind of table stakes. Like those are things every advisor should be doing no matter what, and we do do those things, um, and we make sure we have a plan for those things, and those are always updated. I think the most value we can provide is there's there's this competition between these goals, and being able to artfully guide clients into, hey, I just I got this two hundred thousand dollar bonus. You know, my wife wants me to redo the kitchen. I know our education plans on track of retirement. Being able to artfully navigate and help and educate clients on those big decisions is, is really what we do. I'd say most of our clients, like their plans are on track, but there's lots of, of artful decisions that need to be made where if you don't have an extremely clear and concise picture on their overall, it's going to be very hard to, to be their CFO. So you've talked a few times about trying to manage to sort of staffing when the higher and scale up capacity of advisors. So how do you, you know, now, now that you're out of the like, get a really big volume of clients because you're doing, you know, a high volume of transactions and you're, and you're focusing in on the relationship structures, like how are you looking at advisor capacity at this point? Great question as well. So each advisor, and I, you know, I, I look at a lot of your studies and a lot of the content you put out. I, I think in general, there's probably a consensus where one advisor can handle between 75 to upwards of 150 clients. So that's 
you know, that's really, we're, we're young. We like to, we really like to work. We really like to serve our clients. So we're more around that philosophy of like 125 to 150 clients per advisor. So, you know, my job has really evolved where I'm working with less clients directly as the main contact to helping develop the plans, develop the decisions, delegate and elevate to all the advisors. So they're able to get to the capacity where they should be. And then, you know, we're able to hire our next advisor to take on the next 150 clients. And for advisors who are who are taking on that that load, that target, do they like is it one advisor has X clients, 125, 250, or is that a, a team's environment? Like that's you and a second advisor and you're and you're working them as a team? How does that work from a capacity end? Yeah, so we have an internal called the you know centralized financial planning team. They're doing all the e money plans, all the portfolio management. We use Orion as a technology, all of the you know tax planning and all of the behind the scenes work. And then each client has a lead advisor. That's the direct communication. If anything, I would I would describe myself as a as the support advisor to each of those three <laughs> advisors because I want them being the main contact. I want them. You know, there's a million. Piece times of communication that goes back and forth, and I want them emailing them, not me, so we can scale and I can focus on the high level of the business overall. But so it, it's a hybrid where we have one team that supports every advisor that are handling all of the financial plans, all of the portfolio management, all of the intricate you know financial planning details, and then each advisor is one on one with the with the clients during the reviews and during the communication throughout the year. So so share with me a little bit more of this centralized financial planning support like what do they do where do you draw the lines of what they do versus what advisors do yeah it's a great question so the you know the advisors ultimately we have a whole process of preparing before the meeting getting information that's needed you know a lot of thanks to technology a lot of stuff is linked up but here's all everything executive summaries from the last meeting Here's what we need to prepare for the next meeting. They're in charge of the meeting. And then the follow-up, like let's say the the e-money plan needs up to date, or let's say we need to do a backdoor Roth or adjust allocations, that that would fall on the CFP team to update the e-money plan, to make the trades, to make the transactions, to get accounts transferred. All of that behind the scenes work falls on them. And then all of the communication then falls back on the advisor to make sure the follow-through is is actually done. So beyond so I guess I'm just trying to visualize like beyond literally client meetings what is the what are the lead advisors like responsible for what is what is the rest of their their day and duties outside of the meetings themselves that clearly they they got to lead those that's that's their main that's their main responsibility is the is the meetings themselves and then all of the communication that happens in between meetings cuz it's not just, hey, here's one meeting every six months and we're going to take care of everything. It's here's a meeting in six months and then two weeks later, this is coming up. And then, so it, it's just staying on top of their clients and making sure that they have a very quick turnaround and those clients are the best served possible at all times. But anytime they, they need to do an analysis, they need to run any money projection, they need to dig digger on tax planning and such, that, that goes to the, the financial planning team. That goes to the financial planning team to get it high level, but then the advisor is responsible to make sure that every intricate detail is is up to date. So I, I would say 90% of that gets done and then they get to the finish line, which is almost a forced preparation. It's almost a forced preparation before the meeting. So they are also extremely familiar with the client situation and the, and the client's financial plan. 
And did I hear you say as well that you're doing executive summaries of what happened in the last meeting? So executive summary of the last meeting out and then we here's the outstanding you know things that we have not addressed yet and so typically the structure of the meeting will be you know what's on your mind what do you want to discuss you know what's changed and then quick review of what happened in the last meeting and then our agenda as long as it fits within there that's what they want to do and a lot of those things are already done so for example like the portfolio management do, do you have questions on your portfolio do you have questions on the video and the commentary do you, and and usually that video is so detailed that that portfolio discussion which you know, I found historically could last a half hour to 45 minutes is now one or two minutes so that's you know part of the scaling the, the business through the video content is so doing so doing a video commentary of you know hey here's our look of what's going on in markets for the past month or quarter and sending it out to all clients is cutting down on how much clients ask the portfolio questions in the meeting because a whole bunch of them got to see the video already and it pretty much covered them so they just ask a brief follow up and then that's that. exactly exactly so who like how do you capture these executive summaries of the last meeting? Like, I don't know, my my brain is going to, you know, any number of like nonprofit boards I've been on over the years where like someone's capturing minutes and then the top of the agenda of a meeting is to review the minutes from last meeting and make sure that we we all agree on the minutes. Am I am I visualizing this the right way here, or is it, or is this a little oh, bit different yeah. for what we're, you guys we're, do? We're case noting, and every e- every meeting gets summarized in great detail in an email, and that gets case noted as well. So, so we're who, sending. Who does that? The the advisors. Okay, so every so every meeting. So I guess just walk me through. Like you have a lot of details here of agendas and summaries and post-meeting notes and post-meeting emails. So I guess just like walk me through the the whole structure of how you guys prepare for, do, and then wrap up client meetings. Yeah. Before the meeting, we actually have an advisor pre-meeting, during-meeting, post-meeting checklist. And that changes if it's a new potential client or if it's an existing client. And that's just that's not the the rigid rule. That's just the general framework, and then that gets customized, you know, based upon the client's needs. So, so you specifically got checklists for pre meeting, in the meeting, and post meeting. Exactly. Okay. And those and those checklists work within. You know, here's our CRM. Let's pull all the pre meeting notes. We have you know detailed in Google Sheets every basically like probably forty sections per client. But it's essentially just making sure no detail is missed for each client. So part of the checklist is going through that whole list across the board. So for example, we have, you know, CPA info and tax notes. You know, what what tax transactions were done that needed to was a Roth conversion made? Was that communicated to the CPA? Was the were the taxes prepaid? Budget updates. We have do we have a, a line of credit open up against the account? Have we started gifting to their kid lifetime gifting? What happened in the last meeting? If the target asset allocation notes, backdoor Roths, mega backdoor Roths, are they direct index of the non-qualified accounts? Do we have a outside 401k managed through Pontera? If it's a you know private practice doctor, do we have a cash balance and 401k plan? And we have their income and tax information. We have the ACHs. You know, what are they contributing to their taxable accounts, 401ks, 529 plans? If they if they have risk management, what is their risk management products, beneficiaries, et cetera, 529 plans? And we have a whole estate planning section. 
property and casualty section. Then we have a whole RMD section for people that are 72 or later. Some people that have beneficiary IRAs. So, so it's, you've it's, got like a giant Google sheet for each client where you document all this stuff across the planning domain for each client? Every single thing for each client. And that way, no detail is possibly missed. And that gets looked at before, communicated within the CFP team, and then also updated after. So that way, if you know if someone's out, all the information is is getting captured in one centralized place where the whole team's on the same page. So, I mean, do you like literally have to go through every single section of the plan and every single one of those tabs every single meeting? Like, just how does this work in practice? For us, yes. For the client, maybe we're hitting on two or three things that need to be followed up. But that's part of what we view as a CFO job is we're literally not going through every subject. We're saying, oh, that's covered, that's covered, that's covered, that's covered. Oh, this still needs covered. Great. We're going to bring that up. So it's just extracting the exact what you need to know so we're respecting their time at a high level. So And so where did this come from? Like, Have you just built this from scratch? We built it from scratch. And so it is trying to figure if I'm visualizing because you had said meeting checklist originally. So I'm I'm kind of envisioning like, you know, the the one pager with seven to twelve checklist items that you go through and you know, like pilots have their, you know, pre-flight checklist, you have your pre-meeting checklist. But it sounds like this that's not really what this is. This is more of a here's all the different things that we touch on for our client base across the different areas of retirement and tax and credit and debt and cash flow and gifting and estate and held away 401ks, et cetera, each of which are organized in the tab of a Google Sheet template. And then within each of those domains, there's a couple of areas or things that you regularly do planning on and interact with on clients. And so the advisor looks down the list of each of the things in each of the tabs to check and make sure, are we on track? Is there anything that we need to address in a client meeting? And then we'll spot the few things that we want to put directly onto the client agenda. Well, yes, but this is actually just one part of the checklist. We have another Google Sheet okay. that's just the checklist. And the, one of the first items in the checklist pre and post meeting is updating the this Google Sheet, which has all of those different subjects on it. So that's just one of the few items on the checklist. Okay. So then what else is on the checklist? You know, I can actually just send it to you and we can put it in the show notes and send it to you. In the yeah, so say if you're, if, you're, if you're willing to share, it would be great to share the checklist out to listeners. So for folks who are listening, this is episode 308. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 308, we'll, we'll have the Matthews checklist in the show notes if you want to check them out and take a look. Yeah, just to run through it real quick, the, this is for a review. So review case notes, any follow-up points one or two years ago, balance sheet updates asked for in advance. Make sure up to date, you know, Ryan reports ran on the portfolio. Make sure budget cash flow is up to date. And then during the meeting, it's, you know, and this all gets set in advance. What are, you know, current goals? Ask for update on the goals. Budget updates, we call the technical updates, which is all the the, the things I ran through. Running through the e-money plan. And then we also do a values exercise. So I, the more successful people are, the more complicated decision process making. So it's, it's important to have the understanding of, you know, we go through a top five values checklist. And that really just helps us Instead of us saying, we think you should make this decision if you should buy this vacation house, it's just pointing out you know, what's most important to them. Because sometimes there's a competition between what's the best financial decision, but then also what's best for the family or what's going to give them the most peace of mind. So a lot of it's just a very educational, holistic discussion versus a black or white. We think you shouldn't, shouldn't buy this because of this reason. It's, it's much more of a discussion, educational base that we're reporting them on. You know, here's how to make the best decision. And then... 
like the during meeting checklist is the idea like, well, yeah, I guess is how does that work? Like, is this basically an agenda for the client? This literally a like advisor has a little note that says, make sure you touch on these six areas of the checklist while you are conducting this meeting. Like what's the, what's the during meeting checklist? Yeah. The during meeting checklist is, is the agenda that the, the client sees in the email format before the meeting. Okay. I use the adage, every, every meeting for it to be efficient has to have a start time, has to have an end time. It has to have an agenda. And if those three things are in place, it's really hard to waste time. And in fact, you're going to have some of the best, most productive meetings. And and what what's typically on your agenda for a client meeting? A combination of high-level hug and summary of here's how you're doing. Here's what here's your most important things are educating your kids, retirement, then just making this up. Other discussions where you were considering buying a vacation house, you're considering supporting your parents in this way. Let's discuss those goals. And then here's the follow-ups we need to do. We need pay stubs, audit your tax withholdings. We need this to update your financial plan, et cetera, would just be an example. And then and then what's post-meeting? So post-meeting is just making sure all of the agreed-upon actions are communicated to the team so that you know any action item is is followed through upon and then any action item that is not yet decided we track and follow up you know every week for a couple of weeks until the client decides you know what, let's punt this until our next review 6 months from now or let's schedule another call to to make decisions and then you said every client meeting has a a post meeting summary that went out then that e- that post meeting summary is is just another another email that ends up going in the client CRM file which is Here's what here's what we covered. Here's action items that are currently being done, and then here's what is still yet to be implemented in the future. Once we we mutually decide upon what's best moving forward, would essentially be the gist and of it. So, how do you think about the the timing of hiring and scaling up from here? I mean, like practically speaking, if you're aiming for 125 to 150 clients per advisor, like what when do you decide you're close enough to capacity that's time to hire the next advisor and how do you decide on the timing for the rest of the hires as well? Well, I've always gotten the advice that by the time you think you need to hire someone, you're probably six months too late. So I don't think there's ever been a time now and probably moving forward that not we're not make that we're not looking to hire somebody new. Our most recent lead advisor, you know, probably has the capacity for another seventy five clients. We expect that will happen in the next, you know, twelve to twenty four months. So also within the next you know, immediately we're looking to hire another per, another internal person to fit on that centralized financial planning team to help with the e-money plans, the the portfolio management. Recently, we just adopted direct indexing, so you know a lot of work there. And then the next hire after that will be the the next lead advisor. So, how many advisors are in the centralized planning team versus out in the lead advisor client facing role? So there are three lead advisors, not including me. And then there are two internal. And so we don't have an exact ratio or science. We really look at it with workload, but technology, we've made some pretty heavy investments in with technologies that you know, you've know you done very heavily research into on the Kitsis platform. But I would say it probably moving forward, it's like a, a two to one, two advisors for every one internal team member. Because I'm struck by that, like that means if you're if you're 120 plus cli- clients per advisor, but then you've also got a support advisor, you know, for 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 every two advisors in that group, then you you really end out with an average of about 80 clients per like 80 clients per financial planning professional, of which some are primarily client facing and some are primarily support. For sure, 
for sure. So as you just look at this growth cycle, like how is it different for you in the independent world compared to, to where you were? Like just now that you've lived it, you know, you lived the old world for 10 years, you lived the new world for two plus years now. So like, how is it actually different in practice? Or I guess I'm wondering, like, how, how is it different in practice compared to what you imagined it to be when you were making the decision originally? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the one of the greatest fears were we did have a lot of good joint work relationships. We we're kind of known as the nerds who would dig into the details. So when someone had a complex, wanted to set up a mega back to a Roth or give advice on a, you know, just fill in the blank topic that wasn't just normally selling a product. We were brought into a lot of, of joint work cases. So a lot of at a lot of times we didn't have to do a lot of network. We ended up having joint work for, I would say probably with about a third of our business before was joint work. And now that's that's not at all, right? It's up to us to mm-hmm. to make the firm the rainmaker and to replicate clients through word of mouth and through, you know, eventually we just started actually literally two weeks ago started working with a, a great company doing Google and Facebook ads and we're gonna test that test that out to see how that works. Um, I I would say there was definitely some fears there. You know, are we still gonna be able to grow? And though it's been really great to get past those fears and to realize that we're just doing great planning. We don't need to be salespeople. Just do great planning and, and affluent clients will replicate themselves. I mean they know they can feel that if you have their their back, if you have their best interest in mind, you're doing way a step above and beyond of, of what they would be getting for the fee they're paying elsewhere, it's, you're going to get the retention and you're going to get the replication. Pretty simple as that. So that's just well, our I, focus. I got to ask again, though, like just a lot of advisory firms have really smart advisors that give great advice and are not growing at 40%. Like, why are your clients replicating themselves faster than everybody else's clients? That's a great question. I don't know. I th- I think, <laughs> I think it's a, I, I don't think that, I think like a horse that wins a horse race by an inch is worth a million dollars and the second place is worth a lot less, right? So I, I don't mm. think that we're doing anything dramatically different. I think we are doing certain things we're, th- we're thinking out on a very intricate, detailed level. And it may not look on a surface level that different, but it, it can make a big difference to clients. And I think the and this may sound obvious or corny, but just like the the feeling that I've always heard the quote, clients don't remember what you do, but they always remember how you feel. And so mm-hmm. just building an unstoppable culture of like, of a can-do attitude. Um, I've gotten a lot of emails back from other professionals where it's kind of, you feel like dismissed, right? You ask a question, it's like, I don't know, it's, it would be a pain in the butt for me to figure this out. So you can go here to find that answer. That's not the experience mm-hmm. you're going to get at EWA. The experience you're going to get is if we don't know the answer, we're going to admit that we don't know that, but we're going to do everything possible to get the answer. And I like one. So one example would be, you know, there is there is a stock that was a marijuana based stock, and the custodian that we work with didn't want to have that in the platform, so we went down this deep rabbit hole. And most advisors, I think, would have stopped right there and said, "We can't do this." And then we opened up a a relationship because it was with a top client for through interactive brokers agreed they've been great to work with just you know and just that's an example where it's not we're not a i think a lot of people will will find problems very few people solve those problems and i would describe our firm as we're the problem solvers not the problem finders with a can do attitude and i th- i think those two things alone make a world of difference and that's an experience that clients want to go and and replicate for their friends and family 
I'm really struck by your analogy that like the horse that wins the race by an inch is worth a million dollars more than the the second place horse that was that was an inch behind, right? Just the you know, there's there you can have such an outsized reward by being better than your than your competition that like you don't have to be drastically better. Like you don't have to lap the second place horse to win the race for the first place prize. You just have to win by an inch and that's enough. And and that idea of, you know, it's not necessarily about being radically better than all advisors. It's about being slightly better in a way that you can clearly demonstrate and show sometimes is all it takes for a very different growth outcome. No question. I think there's, I, I would say, because if I, if I had some magic I could just share with you that would change it, I would. I When people ask, I just don't know. I just know what we do and I know how we show up every day and and these are the re- the results are what they are. I'm very humbled. Uh, you know, I didn't, I don't know where we stand as far as like normal growth patterns. I think the, I, I know the culture is really important, you know, delegating and elevating other people. And I know that constantly searching for the best answers and solutions, you know, they, the direct indexing is something that we've, we've recently, I was talking to a firm in New York, Altium, they've grown like crazy. I actually met them at the TD conference and they shared with me what they were doing. I'm like, well, that's an incredible value with the tax loss harvesting they're able to do versus someone that's just doing ETFs in a non-qualified account. So let's adopt that. And it was, you know, it was quite the undertaking, quite the big investment, but clients can feel that's in their best interest. And I think that's just another example, just not only for retention, is constantly looking for the solutions that will best serve clients is, is just a general philosophy. I think clients can feel it's not a one-time thing, it's just a lifelong thing. And clients can feel if they're with the firm that's going to do that or not. And so out of curiosity, like what platform or solution are you using to implement a direct indexing tax loss harvesting solution? It's through it's through Orion. I think it's called Astro. Okay. But yeah, no, it's it's been great. It's it's been great to to work with them and clients have really responded well to it. I was gonna say like how how have clients taken it up because you know there, there's a lot of debate out there in the industry right now of like is it really that valuable to do the direct indexing and just do do clients even really care yeah I think I think a lot of it depends on the sophistication and the tax rate of the of the client and how much money they're gonna end up accumulating a non-qualified account but a lot of our clients you know they max out like 80 percent of their savings goes to like a seven figure earner they're going to max out their 401k. If they're in private practice, they're going to set up a cash balance plan. They're going to max out 529 plans. And most of their wealth ends up being in a non-qualified account and being able to accumulate money and then distribute that money later with with big loss carry forwards to offset those those gains. I was you know talking with the, the other firm, I think it was 2021, where mostly there was not that much opportunity to tax loss harvest, if at all. And they were able to get like a 4 or 5% tax alpha just that year because like 900 of the 3,000, Russell 3,000 companies went down, not up, and you know I saw that as a big as a big advantage just from a tax perspective. Well, and I guess as as noted, like because you've got a a big focus into physicians, like you've got a subset of clients who are are very high income. Like there's a for sure a lot of dollars and some very high tax rates, which means you know marginal tax savings is quite material for them. No question. So, what surprised you the most about this journey of building your advisory business? Um, what's the, that's a great question. I think 
it's I think that it's never going to get easier. And that's just a mindset. I watched a video recently, I think it was on YouTube, where it's like, it's how well you handle hard is going to be how successful you are. Because it's like in my in my life, just an example, it's like when I get to my first hundred clients, then I'm set. Or no, it's when I get to seven, when I get to a million of revenue, then it's going to be okay. Or when I get to, when I pay off this debt, I'm going to be okay. Well, there's always that. And now the most recent was when I transition, everything's going to be okay. So it's not, I think what surprised me is how hard never stops. There's always going to be the next hard in your life. It's just how well you handle it. And if you lean into it versus, you know, lean away from or victimize it, turn it into something good. I think that's what's what's most surprising is every corner I've turned where I'm like, oh, now life's going to be easy. It just gets harder and harder and harder, but it's just how how well you handle the hard. And just the mindset around it is, you know, running your own RIA, you have to have that mindset where it's bring it on. We're going to turn this into something good whenever something hard happens. So what was the low point for you on this journey? Oh, this is going to get deep. I would say the low point. So, you know, at the prior firm, I was asked to do talks. I was asked to do educational talks or sometimes at the national meetings talks. And and so, you know, you, you have this really good feeling of giving back and leaving. There wasn't a lot of communication, a lot of, you know, a lot of friends and you know, they thought you thought you gave back. It was kind of felt like it was forgotten the second you left. Mm. So that I realized how but it was really a good lesson to me is is that um you know you you really just have to focus on clients and doing the best possible job and it was probably the sign that I shouldn't have been there from the get go but that was that was part of my identity that I felt like I'd probably pushed too much of my identity in is giving back and trying to provide value when that was really only there when I was part of that culture and as soon as I was gone that was that was forgotten hmm. so it 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 hurt to have given that much of as you put like to given that much of your identity towards that effort and then when you left like it 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 vanished yeah it was kind of like okay that was 10 years of my life wasted but then when you look at it really it's like no that was 10 years of of my life i learned the most important lessons i went through adversity and now i'm able to learn probably a lesson i forget the exact quote it's about like in your 20s you worry about what everyone else thinks then in your 30s or 40s it's something and then when you get older it's like you realize no one's actually thinking about you and so to have learned that lesson early on, I think is absolutely invaluable. So you can really just, you know, shut your mind off and, and just focus on what really matters. So in that context, though, like anything you wish you'd done differently or like, what do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you 10 years ago? Yeah, I think the, I think just recently, and I was sitting down with one of my best friends and unfortunately he's going through some, some rough times with his, his father was diagnosed with cancer recently. And they're both some of my best friends and they, you know, he was, who he's always talked about, like business is so hard. And then, so we've gone back and forth, like, what do you sell your business? And then you spend more time. As, so one of the discussions we have is basically, okay, with, you know, you sell your business, now you have more family time, but what kind of example are you setting for your kids then? Are they, they're, they're going to grow up saying that you don't work. So it's, it's this constant. And so then if you're just working so hard, you're not spending with your time. So we basically, and he, he said it best. He's like, basically I view tension as the best possible thing. Like I'm thrive when I feel tension. When I don't feel tension, or when I feel like stressed, it means I'm going way too far in one direction. But when I feel a tension where everything is kind of pulling me a little bit in different direction, that's the healthiest thing. And that's back to that workout analogy. I wish I would have known that because I just stressed too much about, you know, feeling like I was a failure in one area over the other area of life. But in reality, it's I think as human beings, we're meant to get beat up, we're meant to go through adversity. That's how we grow. And and having the mindset of that actually being a good thing, oh, that would have saved me so much worry and stress over the past 10 years. 
of just viewing that as a good thing. And yeah, let's always grow and have stuff on our plate that's going to move the ball forward. So what advice would you give younger, newer advisors getting getting started in a financial planning career today? I would say the journey is more important than the goal, for sure. Use the 80-20 analysis every year. You know, Evaluate what the 20% of your effort that's going to get 80% of the result. And I, then I would like, say... How do you do that in practice? I mean, do you do that, like use the 80-20 rule analysis every year? How does that show up for you? We do that every, for sure every year. We look at you know what, what drove... Here's all the clients that came in. Where they come from? Okay, how can we spend... That came from these clients... They're a great center of influence. How can we spend more time with them? Or how can we replicate relationships like these where other clients feel so good about referring us business? That, that would be one example, just realizing where's the where's the growth coming from and replicating it versus trying to do a million different things that maybe like throwing random darts at a wall and seeing what sticks. And so every year, like you literally sit down and look at the data of where did where did your growth come from to do that evaluation? Absolutely. And you know, part of that would be establishing we follow that the traction system. So every quarter you're you're coming up with the rocks for every team member. So three rocks, three goals that they they need to accomplish that quarter to all fit on that one chip mentality. So, you know, part of the eighty twenty analysis is look at what are the twenty percent of the activities that are gonna drive eighty percent of the results in deciding those rocks for every team member on a quarterly basis. So that, that really shows up not just on a yearly basis, but on a quarterly basis as well in our firm. So what comes next for you? Great question. So goal, our goal is we really want to, you know, continue to to grow and push ourselves and do best work for our clients and continue to scale. And to do that based upon all industry data, we want to get in the top 1% of of RAAs out there. So I I think based on my research, that would be, you know, getting to that billion dollars of AUM where we can continue to make the best technology, hire the best talent and, and and serve our clients the best. So the, the goal in the next five years will be get to that billion dollar AUM mark and, and get to a $10 million revenue number. So this is a podcast around success. And this one of the themes I've always observed is the the word success means really different things to different people. And so as someone who's, you know, built a very just objectively economically successful business, how do you define success for yourself at this point? I do that question was coming and it's always uh it's it's that's a deep question. So, yeah, I would say success for me would be feeling feeling tension in all the right areas of my life. And you know, I've gone through this recently, gone through this life wheel exercise where it's like you rank your different areas of your life, personal or relationships or financial or business, rank them one to ten. And if you have you know, imagine a wheel on your piece of paper, one's a five, three are tens. It's a lopsided wheel, and as you roll through life, it's going to be really bumpy. So I would say success is evaluating those and making sure everyone's consistently an eight or a nine. Because if one's a 10 and that causes two of them to be threes, that's going to cause some big friction and the tension to be really um, overloaded in one direction. I would say is just having success right now would be continuing to grow, continuing to have tension and, and continuing to have that balanced approach to life. Very cool. I, I like that analogy of just, you know, look at the domains of your life. How well are they running on a 110? If the numbers are all similar, at least the wheel is is rolling smoothly if some are particularly strong and some are particularly weak you get a really lopsided jagged wheel and that that's what produces the most most disruptive bouncy journey no question no question and then one of the i guess one of the other you know what's next or what how would i define success is just really giving back to to other advisors i mean this has been a one of the most fulfilling careers i'm very passionate about but we're we're starting to you know essentially create an in, 
this started by creating an internal resource for EWA, our firm, of you know how can we get client, how can we get new advisors up and running as quickly as possible? Because there's a lot of talented people, young people that want to be in the field, but don't necessarily don't want to be salespeople or call their friends and family to do so. So how can we get them up and running as quickly as possible? So we started to create videos and courses to get them bought into the culture, and then also to there's information everywhere, but to get that information and translate it to clients to then take action, that creates a lot of artwork. So we've created a whole course and framework, and we're actually making that now available to the public. It's going to be called wealthadvisortraining.com. And so we really want to give back in a big way and, and create a good culture through that new business and also learn from other advisors and figure out what are their, what are their problems and help solve those problems. And then the next initiative we're going to do is the... There's a huge gap between what affluent people have access to, you know, an REA firm out there like us or others compared to, you know, what middle or lower class have available to. And sure, there's information, but actually getting the right information because there's so many influencers and entertainers out there getting the right financial literacy out there. So we're going to create a financial literacy course that we're going to help distribute through non-for-profits and then actually use some of that content also to start bridging the gap between our clients and their kids. We don't necessarily have the time to scale and, and have every kid become our client, but creating a good educational platform also for our clients' children for financial literacy so that when this huge wealth transfer happens, it's done so on a, a very successful, mature, and like a values-based basis where the wealth just doesn't disappear within a couple of years. Very cool. Very cool. Well, for for advisors who are interested, again, this is episode 308. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 308, we'll have a, a link out to Matthew's Wealth Advisor Training platform as well if you want to you know, see, see what it looks like as they've taken their internal training and making it available to other advisors as well. Well, thank you, Matthew, so much for just sharing the journey, sharing the update in the journey for how much is, has changed over the past couple of years on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the member section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.